last week we started a new sermon series for the fall called A Path to Paradise. And if you weren't here uh, and, and you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it kind of sets us up for the entire semester. And you can go back, you can go to our website, you can go to SoundCloud, iTunes, you can find uh, our podcast and you can listen to that sermon. But basically last week I said that all of us long for some sort of a paradise. We want to be in a, in a place of beauty. We want to be in a place where we have relationships and we love the people in those relationships and they love us back. And we want to be in a place where we're having meaningful work uh, and some really great food. And, and it, it is just in all of us that we desire some form of that. And, and case in point, uh, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or The Bachelor in Paradise, Right? Millions of people are watching uh, The Bachelor or or in The Bachelor family, right? And uh, it's a beautiful place, and there's great food, and there's relationships, and there's love. Maybe it's love. I don't know. But it's something akin to to love. And so I thought it'd be helpful to start this sermon watching a little clip of Bachelor in Paradise. And so what we have here is that we have Dean... Has returning to paradise. He's left and he came back and he's telling Kaylin that he made a mistake by leaving and that while he was gone, he came to his senses and he's coming back to woo her back to himself, even though she's been dating Dean in his absence. But never mind that. All right, let's let's take a look. Okay, enough of that, enough of that. All right, so we know what's going to happen, right? Like, she is going to say, yes, yes, I want to be with you forever. And, and this is like the end of all these shows, or hopefully the end of all these shows is like this like monogamous, committed marriage and the big wedding at the end, right? So it's really weird because the show, as far as I can tell, full disclosure, I don't really watch it, but... It's a drunken orgy, and somehow the drunken orgy is going to lead to a monogamous marriage with true love for the rest of their lives. And so you have this weird mix of, of this crazy messed up world, yet longings for a paradise. And, that, and that, that's in all of us. And what we talked about last week is that this paradise that we long for is actually a different world. It's another world. It, it, there's glimpses of it here. We get little tastes of it. But, but we were made for another world. There is a true and better paradise. Genesis 1 and 2 describes that true and better paradise. 
This is the beginning of the, the path to paradise, is realizing that we were actually created in paradise. And so you, you heard the end of Genesis 1 read and, the begin, and, and part of Genesis 2. The reason I had them read that is, is because you're seeing the, the two creation stories, and in particular the creation of human beings in each of those stories. And Genesis 1 is kind of a big picture where you see this, this, this full picture of the creation. And day one, God does this. Day two, this. Day three, this. And then day six, eventually, he's creating human beings. And then Genesis 2 account, you zoom in and you see God intimately creating uh, human beings. This is the place where we see really our first covenant. And the, and the covenants are all along this path to paradise. And this first uh, covenant, uh, we, we said last week that covenant is this agreement that God makes with human beings. And it's always initiated by God, and it always results in relationship between God and human beings. And so here God in the garden is built, he's making a covenant with human beings. Um, in the book that uh, O. Palmer Robertson writes called The Christ of the Covenants, he calls his first covenant the covenant of commencement. The covenant of commencement. So this is the first. This is kind of commencing everything that's on the path uh, to paradise. And we use the symbol of the tree. Hopefully, if you were here last week, you picked up the little reading plan that was on your seats. Uh, if you didn't, there's some in the far back as you, as you uh, exit after the service. You can pick these up. But the reading for this week was Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? The reading for this coming week is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So you're not behind. It's not, it's not like, you know, if you're in college and you go to the first class and you're like, well, you should have read this before the class, so now you're two chapters behind. You're actually not behind. you still got Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I would encourage you to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. These, these are so foundational for understanding uh, all of Scripture. So in these opening chapters of the Bible, we see the patterns of paradise. We see patterns in regard to who God is. We see patterns in regard to who we are. So we're going to look at four patterns regarding who God is and four patterns regarding who we are. Okay? That's where we're going. So regarding who God is, the first pattern is God is the center of everything. He's the center of everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was anything physical, anything material, there was God. And there are no rivals to God. You see no rivals, which is a great contrast to ancient religions. In ancient religions, the standard fare is deities fighting it out, rivaling with each other, trying to, to get their domains under control. And one has the, the, the domain of the sky, and the other has the domain of land, and the other of water, and the other of the underworld, and they're all fighting it out, trying to get control of their domain and perhaps other domains. There is no rival in Genesis 1 or 2 to God. There is one God. He is absolutely sovereign over everything seen and unseen. And so we see at, at the center of this true and better paradise is God himself. It's God himself. He is the infinite source of everything, of creation itself. He's the infinite source of love and joy and peace and truth and justice and blessing. All of that is flowing out of God who is at the center of all things. 
And as fallen human beings, we desire the secondary things that come out of the primary thing. We, we start to put those secondary things, beauty or relationships or food or whatever, we try to shove that in the middle as the center. That is not paradise. That is not the pattern of paradise. The pattern of paradise is that God is at the center of paradise. Spiritually speaking, we're, we're like flat earthers who think that the whole universe is, is orbiting around earth, Right? That's what we think. And why did they think that? Why did they think the earth was flat? Why did they think the whole universe was orbiting around earth? Because it felt like that. Right? They stepped out of their house and they looked around and they're like, earth looks flat to me. Must be flat. They, they could see the stars and the moon and the sun. And it was like, looks like all that is orbiting around earth. Right? It felt like it. But they were wrong. They were wrong. Spoiler alert for some of you. I don't know. They, they were wrong. The earth is not flat, and the universe does not revolve around the earth. And so we had to have some outside information, some scientific revelation from people like Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler that helped us understand, oh, I, what I felt was wrong. The earth is not the center. Not even, it's not even the center of our solar system, much less the universe, Right? And we needed this outside revelation. So Johannes Kepler, he was, he was the one that came up with the understanding that the orbits around, that the planet's orbits are not circular, they're an ellipses. Right? And so he wrote this. He said, since the Son of God was at the center of the Christian faith, the Son, S-U-N, ought to be at the center of the universe. So even then, he still thinks the Son is the center of the universe. He's still having some issues there, but... But he, he's understanding that there is a center even to reality itself, right? That God in Christ. Now, all of us humans, spiritually speaking, we need a Copernican revolution. We need to be told that not only the earth, but we are not the center of the universe. And we come by this pretty honestly. I mean, think about it. We arrive on the scene as little infants, and we are the center of the universe. Every little whimper. Mom and dad are right there to meet our every need, unless we're the second child or the third child, but <laughs> that's a whole different thing. This then rolls into the terrible twos where we become a tiny tyrant ruling over our kingdom, right? That can even roll into the teenage years, right? And then here, I mean, some of you who are college students now spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of your parents' money to get an education, right? Why? So you can get a really awesome job and get some money and have a really awesome, nice life, right? While 93% of the rest of the planet doesn't even have a college degree. We come by this naturally, thinking we are the center of the universe. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with parents that love you. Nothing wrong with education Nothing wrong with having a roof over your head and being, being fed and cared for. What is wrong is taking any of those secondary things and putting them in the center. That is wrong. And that's what we humans do. We put everything else but God in the center. God is the center. That is the pattern of paradise. God is also powerful. He makes everything. 
right? Heaven and earth, and he does it by speaking it into existence. So this is a human fantasy that we could speak things into existence, right? Say the magic word, presto changeo, something happens. Or even better, that we could, we could do something with our thoughts. We could create something with our thoughts, right? Use the force, Luke. You just think it, oh, it can happen, right? This is our fantasy. This is no fantasy for God. This is no fantasy for God. And he's not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. He's creating Saturn, you know? He's creating light. He's creating land and water, solar systems. How does he do it? By speaking it. That's power. That's power. And that's the power of God. That's part of the pattern of paradise. At the same time, as he's powerful, he is personal. He is personal. He's a God who speaks. He uses words. Right? Words indicate that he can converse. And he seems to be conversing even before he creates human beings to converse with. In Genesis 1.26, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Think, well, who are you talking to, God? Huh? We understand this to be one of the first allusions to the idea of a triune God. That God is one God, but he's three persons, and each of those persons is fully God. I'll say that again, that he is one God, but he is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and each of those persons is fully God. God is a triunity. So even before he created human beings, he is in relationship. Somehow, and there's a lot of mystery here, okay, but somehow there's relating inside the Trinity and there's speaking to one another. He's also very personal in the way that he makes human beings. Genesis 2-7 says, Then Lord, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God himself interacting with the matter that he's created to create a physical human and then to blow in the breath of life. God is personal. God is personal. God is the center of everything. God is powerful. God is personal. God is good. God is good. This is such a strong theme here in the opening pages of the Bible. As we see God doing what he does, he continually declares it good, and then he displays his goodness. Genesis 1, 3, and 4, God says, let there be light. So it's the very opening of the creation, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. That's right. Another example, Genesis 1, 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Later in Genesis 1, 28, it says, and God blessed them. So first thing he does with human beings that he creates is he blesses them. He doesn't give them a lecture. He, he doesn't give them 10 rules. He, he blesses them, right? And then Genesis 1.31 is sort of a comprehensive statement about all of creation. God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, you, you're catching on. All right. And then after he does all that, creates all that, does, blesses human beings, we, the very next day, what does he give them? But He gives them rest. 
Right? Th- think of Adam. He gets up day seven. He's, he was created day six. He gets up day seven. He's like, okay, God, what's on the agenda? What are we going to do today? Rest. Rest? We haven't even worked yet. I know. I want to give you rest. So good. God is so good. He's such a God of blessing to Adam and Eve. Now, four patterns regarding who we are. Number one, we are not the center of everything. God shows up way before we do. God creates the world formless and void, and then he takes that formless world and he forms it. And he takes the the void of that world and he fills it. And then in that beautiful world that he has formed and filled, he creates human beings in his own image. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he blesses them, right? And they are like the crown of creation. They are like no other of his creation, but they are not the center. They are not the center. They are special. They are unique. They bear his image in ways that that, that nothing else does. But they are not the center. We pervert this pattern. And you'll find that each of these four, we, we pervert these patterns. Pervert just means to twist it, to change it, to... To, to, to ruin it, right? We place ourselves at the center. That's not paradise. It feels like paradise. It feels like that's what's going to give me paradise. If I put me at the center, that is not the pattern of paradise. Number two, we are made in the image of God. Again, in verse 26 of chapter 1, he's saying, let us make man or mankind in our image an image is a reflection of the one who is, is being imaged, right? It's, it's just like a mirror or a photo, right? This picture of me is taking a picture of myself in the mirror. I did this for an illustration, not really to do it, but both of those are images. Like, that's somewhat me, but it's not me. I mean, in part, I'm three-dimensional, and the image in a mirror or a photograph is two-dimensional, so... So it's not a one-to-one correlation, but there is a correlation at some level. This is like us. We image bear, right? We image, we we bear the image of God. We reflect the image of God like a photo, like a a mirror. Is it a one-to-one correlation? Are we God? No. But we we do image some of his characteristics. Here's a few examples. So God is creative, and so are we. It's one of the ways that we reflect back who he is, is is in our creativity, especially if our creativity actually bears some of his characteristics as well. When we create things that detract from communicating his glory, that's a problem, right? But when we create things that actually are also helping to bear his, his image, that's powerful. Your dog's not doing that. Your dog doesn't do that. I know you love your dog. I know you think your dog's a person, but look, your dog is not creative, your dog can't do it. He just cannot create stuff. Right? Why not? What's wrong? What's wrong with you, dog? Why can't you write a poem? Why can't you write a song? Like, what's your problem? He's not created in the image of God. He can't do that. You can do that because you've been created in the image of God. God works and rests. God works and rests. Right? We, can, we do that. We reflect back who God is when we work hard and we stop to rest. We're reflecting the image of God. Your dog doesn't really work. 
dog just gets up, looks for food, looks for a nap, looks for a cuddle. You know, I, the, the dog is not looking for meaningful work, not trying to figure out how can I make a difference in the world. You are trying to figure that out. Why? Whether you're a Christian or not, you're trying to figure that out. I want to make me, some, some meaningful difference. Why? Because you're created in the image of God. You're reflecting back, whether you know it or not, who God is. God's a truth teller. We were made to be people of, of integrity, that who we are on the inside is who we are on the outside, right? And, and so when we reflect that back, we're reflecting a, at least a glimpse of who God is, who is God of absolute integrity. God's a life giver. He gives life. We see this in these opening pages. This is his heart. And so we too, we want to be life givers, not life takers. Number three, we are physical and spiritual. This is another pattern that we see here. Um, we, we looked at this Genesis 2-7 where God is creating human beings. And so we see that the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground. So that's his physical being. But that's not enough. Like he's got the physical being, and he's got the brain, he's got the neurons, and he's got everything physical that he needs, but he's not a living soul yet. And then it says that he, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's when he becomes alive, like a live person. So this one who had no life in it now has life. Why? Because the immaterial, the spiritual part of that human has now been integrated into the physical part of that human. It's the opposite of what happens when someone dies. When someone dies, that, spot, that body and soul disintegrates, right? And the person's dead. The physical body's still there. Why isn't it talking to me? Why isn't it alive? Because the soul, the immaterial part, has disintegrated from the, the material part. And he says that man became a living creature, or that, that Hebrew word there is nephesh, a, a soul, a, a living soul. And so we are both material and immaterial, body and uh, soul. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting that as much as some want to deny this, they still practically live out life as if it's true. So even the, the hardened atheist, right, loves their mom, gets overwhelmed with the rush of romance, cries at the birth of their children, stands at the mouth of the Grand Canyon, in awe. Why? Is it just enzymes? Is it just neurons? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think they're experiencing something spiritual. This is why when you go to a mountain town, like Durango, Colorado, or Santa Fe, New Mexico, we were, we were just in Asheville, North Carolina, a few months ago, and these places are so beautiful physically, but then they're crazy spiritual. You're walking through these towns, and there's so much spirituality everywhere. Why is that? Because people are experiencing something spiritual. They may not be able to, to know exactly what it is, but they're experiencing something in the unseen as they're experiencing the seen world. Christians can also pervert this pattern. They can over-spiritualize or under-spiritualize. They can over-spiritualize life and say, you know, life's really just about me, reading the Bible, saying some prayers, going to worship, and the rest of the world's physical needs can just, sorry, too, too, too bad. Jesus will come back, he'll fix it, right? Or you can under-spiritualize where you're like, 
No, the church should be about feeding the poor and fighting for justice, and we do not need to be telling anybody about their need for a Savior and forgiveness and that there's eternal hell and all that stuff. We're not, we're not doing that, right? That's under-spiritualizing. It's, it's both. <laughs> it's both, right? We are physical. We are spiritual. And, and these realities should be lived out inside the Christian life. The fourth pattern of paradise in regards to our own selves is we're created to live in community. We're created to be in community with other human beings. We notice that the first human is created alone with God. I think that's on purpose to show the primacy of that relationship. That is first and foremost, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. That relationship with God is first and foremost. God is the center. And God and Adam are working together. They're working. They're resting God says something really stunning in Genesis 2.18. He says to Adam, it's not good that man should be alone. You look at that and you just think, how could there be anything that's not good? I mean, creation is absolutely perfect. Perfect relationship with God and within yourself and with the earth. Why would it not be good? And, and, And God is revealing that we were built in the paradise where we were created to be in relationship with other human beings. It's part of the pattern of paradise. And so here's Adam. He's a bachelor in paradise. And God and Adam go on a hunt for a, a, a helper that's fit for him. And they, they go through the whole animal kingdom. And they're like, there's no one there. There's no one there that's fit, right? And God does, performs the first surgery of all time, takes a, a rib from Adam, creates this woman and offers up this woman to him as a companion, as a lover, as a, as a friend, as one who is working alongside him in the mandate that they've been given. We're built to be in community. And this certainly speaks to marriage, but it also just speaks to human relationship in general. I think everyone's, not everyone's called to, to be married, right? but we are all called to be in relationship with people. We were built uh, for that. And we have no problem <laughs> with, with perverting that pattern. Our world is full of that. Our own lives are full of that. Here's just one example. I've been reading this book by Sherry Turkle named, uh, called Reclaiming Conversation. And she argues that because of the digital age that we live in, we're choosing connection online over conversing with actual humans face-to-face. She calls this the mediated life. All right, so we're not relating face-to-face. We're, we've got to have some kind of mediation to connect with other humans. She says this new mediated life has gotten us into trouble. Face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard, of being understood. She also writes, but these days we find ways around conversation. We hide from each other even as we're constantly connected to each other. For on our screens, we are tempted to present ourselves as we would like to be. Of course, performance is part of any meeting anywhere, but online and at our leisure, it is easy to compose, edit, and improve as we revise. So she has lots of reasons why we do this. One is we can can keep our what we're portraying perfect online. There's lots of, lots of things coming out lately about this, about how many selfies a person takes before it's just, it's just the right selfie, right? 
how many times you write the, the, the post and think, is that right? Is that going to get likes? What? Over and over and over and over again, we're, we're, we're curating our image, right? Is that really relating? It's, it's connecting on some level, but, but it is not perhaps what God had in mind when God built us for community. She talks about the rule of three. This is so interesting to me. She says, for instance, let's say seven college students go to the dining hall, and they're all going to eat together. They get their food. They sit down at the table, put the food down, and then take their phone, put it face up right next to their food. And they just want to make sure that if they get an important notification that the phone is right there. And she says they function according to the rule of three. What she means by that is that as long as at least three people have their head up and they're involved in the conversation, it's okay to look down at your phone. The minute you realize that less than three people are in the conversation, you pop your head back up. Then when you realize there's enough people that are in the conversation, you put your head back down, you check your phone. You're laughing because you do it. You know you do it. That's messed up. That's messed up, right? We're, we're built for face-to-face conversing, relating. You know, one way to carve out a little piece of paradise is just have like a no-phone zone at the dining hall, you know? Or at the family dinner table, some of you parents that looking at your phone when you got your kids at the table, right? We are messed up. We, we, twist, we twist this. We twist some of these patterns, these patterns of being in relationship with one another that were laid down in paradise. Now, not only does this pattern about relationships speak to community in general, it speaks to sexuality as well. Uh, we see that in the paradise that we were made for, that there is gender, there is marriage, there is sex, and there are babies, and all those are, are integrated. They're all integrated with one another. Uh, we get this from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 27, 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There you see the idea of gender. God blessed them and said, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's babies. Okay? Uh, Genesis 2, 23, the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Did we have some gender again? Verse 24, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. There's, that's marriage, okay? Then say, hey, let's go hook up. He's like, we're leaving family to join our lives together. And then they shall become one flesh. That's sex. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, right? And so between Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we have this integrated whole of gender and marriage and sex and family. Now, what is God doing through that? Partly, he is increasing the number of image bearers on the earth. More and more image bearers that are reflecting his glory is partly what is going on there. And those image bearers are are also being productive in work, which is also imaging his glory. So the more the better, right? Which I know is a complete opposite of the way our culture thinks about human beings. It's like, let's just keep the human being population down, right? And in Genesis, it's like, no, let's have image bearers that are working productively for the glory of God and the good of 
human beings. Uh, when, when Jesus is questioned about the topic of divorce, he turns to the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. He has some religious leaders who are saying, you know, divorce is okay as long as the husband is wanting a divorce, and he can have any reason he feels like he can have a divorce. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you think? What do you think about divorce? And Jesus says this, verse 4 of Matthew 19, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? And the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? He's combining Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He's going back to paradise. He's going back to the patterns that were laid down in paradise, even though he's standing in paradise lost. He's looking around. He, he is, is seeing the carnage of paradise lost, but still he goes back to paradise and the patterns that were laid down. So any sexual expression outside of that pattern is outside the pattern set down by God. That includes divorce. That includes sex outside of marriage. That includes trying to, to do one flesh with more than one person. Right? That includes domestic abuse. That includes rape. That includes incest. All those things are outside of the pattern for sexuality that God laid down in Genesis 1 and two, also, but also mimicking one flesh union between male and male and female and female. It is not consistent with the pattern that's laid down in Genesis 1 and 2. And identifying with a gender that's not consistent with your biology, that is not, it's not consistent. What we see in our culture today is an attempt to disintegrate all those things. So kind of the the queer theory for dummies is this disintegration of biology, gender identity, and sexual attraction. While in Genesis 1 and 2, those things are bundled, what our, what our culture is currently trying to do is saying, I'm going to break those apart. Those don't have to be uh, together. Uh, Freddie McConnell has been in the news this week, and he's a biological female. He... Uh, sh- uh, identifies as a male, um, and wanted to have a baby. There's a whole documentary about it uh, called The Seahorse. And so this person has a baby. And this is what the person says. If all men got pregnant, then pregnancy would be taken so much more seriously and talked about. You see, what, what they're doing there is they're pulling apart Gender, pulling apart biology, pulling apart uh, sexual orientation. Now, this is not to be mocked. This is not to be belittled. These, these things are things that I have walked beside people in the midst of. So this is not like us and them kind of talk. These are, these are realities that, that, that are being faced. And so you're saying, well, Pastor Rob, what are you saying? Is there, is there something wrong with these folks, I'm saying there's something wrong with all of us. That's what I'm saying. That in our own way, we are perverting the patterns of paradise. In our own way, we, we are all saying that our desires are at the center of our spiritual solar system. And that is a lie. We think that putting our desires at the center of our solar system is, is going to lead to our paradise but it is not. 
it is going to lead to our peril. And so one of the patterns that God is laying down here is, is biblical sexuality. And so it's, it's interesting. It, it's not enough just to know those patterns and be told, let's live out those patterns. You know, to me, it's kind of bring those up and then you say, okay, let's try really hard this week. We're going to live out paradise. It's, we can't do it. We don't have it in, our, in us to do it. We actually have to have someone come and do it for us. And that's what we see in Jesus. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus being described in John 1, 1, in the beginning, that sound familiar? Genesis 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So he's describing Jesus, calling him the Word. Part of that is because it, it, he's, God's a communicator, not just with written word and spoken word, but literally showing up in the flesh. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Why? Because he knows he has to rescue us from paradise laws. We find out in John 1.14 that he indeed became flesh. The Word became flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We, we see Jesus showing up in the New Testament, but we also see Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. We may just not realize it. In Genesis, where we see God walking with Adam and Eve and creating a human from the dust and blowing the, the, the life inside the human, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This, this is what we might call a Christophany the first Christophany of the Old Testament. Christophany is when God shows up in a, in a body. And our understanding theologically is every time that happens, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that shows up, the person, the divine son of God. And so this one who was there creating the universe, creating human beings, takes on a human nature himself. And he does that to rescue us and deliver us back to paradise. And so if, if, if you are interacting with Jesus and you are only experiencing grace and never truth that confronts you, that is a Jesus of your own making. So we see in this, John says he's full of grace and truth. And so I think a lot of us, we, we want to shape Jesus into our own image. And we want Jesus to tell us what we want to hear. We just want the grace part. We don't want the truth part. That's not Jesus. Now, he is full of grace. And that grace is extended to those willing to admit that they have perverted the patterns of paradise. That's what it means to be a sinner. So take the patterns of paradise and twist them. And do that over and against God, who's worthy to be the center. And so Jesus comes confronting us about that, and that is his truth, but also offering forgiveness for that, which is his grace. This is the gospel. So if you've never received that by faith, I would encourage you to do that this, today. That if, that if you know you, you have twisted that pattern and that you need forgiveness, but not only forgiveness, to be transformed by that grace, to begin to live the patterns that God has laid down for us in his word. For those of you, you've done that, you've received by grace through faith, this salvation that he offers through the cross, 
you have an opportunity to, yet again, as we come together, confess those places where you've fallen back into those old patterns. And it's, it's easy to do, right? It's easy to do, to go back and, and, and fall in, and that's a, a time of confession to Him, of experiencing His truth, but also His grace, His grace of forgiveness, His grace of transformation into new patterns. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. Jesus, on the night before he's betrayed, he's a bachelor of sorts. He's not in paradise. He's in paradise lost. And he has a bride that he wants to bring back into relationship with himself, a bride that, that is his people. And what he's going to have to do in order to, to bring her back into relationship with him is much more than flashing his pearly whites and saying some sweet nothings. But he's going to have to become a human being and then have his flesh broken, he tells us, that the very one who created human beings and blew the breath of life into them becomes a human being and allows the disintegration of his body and soul unto death. And in the same way, took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, is, is, it's this paradise that we were made for, that we lost, and that Jesus has come to give us back. And so it, it did not come without a cost, and he paid that cost and offers to us his truth and his grace. And so if you've received that by, by faith, then we encourage you to come and dine with God and with one another at his table, remembering this price that he has paid, remembering this thing that he's done in us to restore us to himself, but also restore us to each other, that the church will become at least a glimpse of the paradise that is to come. If you're here this morning and you, you, you know you're just beginning to investigate the Christian faith, that, that you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here, but we're going to encourage you during this time to remain in your seat and to merely think about what you're hearing, pray about it, and then seek someone out to talk more after the service. I'll be here at the front if you want to talk, uh, or there'll be others around that maybe you know that uh, you could speak to as well. So let's pray.